Beehive Sports Podcast. Here's your host, Joe Bees. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Beehive Sports Podcast, episode 10. We've reached double digits. Uh, Going to keep moving it along. So uh, a few things to talk about in the opening segment I want to get to. First, some of you might have seen the post on Facebook already. The Pirates betting experiment. This is something that I thought about yesterday. I was kind of looking at their schedule and results, win margin. Um, it's a value. It's about getting value out of the bet, which is something that we, you know, previously discussed. Uh, it's something that I try to do when I'm looking at bets. You obviously want to get the most bang for your buck. So with the Pirates, what I did today, and I'm going to continue doing this. I don't. I haven't really set a limit. I don't know if I'm going to go 20 games uh, to start it off or I don't know, just kind of going to ride it out and see how it goes. But uh, what I'm doing is a $20 bet. So it's not a real expensive bet. And what I'm doing with it is I'm going to the more wagers tab where I then choose an alternate line. So if the team they're playing, which today well, as as of the day I recorded this and the end of the day that I'm starting the the actual experiment, they were playing Atlanta. I shared Atlanta's post because I'm going to do that every day, the result, and I'm going to keep the, the numbers up there so we can all kind of keep track of it together. Took an alternate line for the Braves, minus two and a half against the Pirates. So... That bet came in at plus 150. So $20 will win you 30. Obviously, you're 20 back. So your your total bring back from the bet is going to be 50 bucks. But your winnings is 30. 20 being the initial wager. So I'm going to do this every night that the Pirates are playing. Because now if you look at it, okay, so the one, the plus 150, I made $30 off of that. If I catch them tomorrow, say just hypothetical, it's the same line and they, you know, I win that one as well. Then we have 60 in profits. So that would actually get me through three more games with the $20 wager before, you know, I I go back into my, my money. I'm playing with the the house money at that point. So going to just try this and just see how, how it works out. I don't know. The Pirates are pretty shitty and they got smoked by the Braves. Uh, the three out of the four, I think it was, but yeah. So keep, keep an eye out on that again. Like I said, if I can catch him at even minus one and a half and it's still plus money, that's the idea of the entire thing though. I don't ever want it to be uh, a negative one Oh six, one Oh four, one ten, whatever. I'm always going to take whatever's plus. So if the initial line of the game is, you know, whoever they're playing minus one and a half and it's plus money, then I'm going to take that. But if uh, I have to, then I'll go to the alternate line and move it to two and a half, at which point you're definitely going to be in plus money. I would think, I don't think there's going to be an uh, instance, even if they're playing the best team in baseball, it's usually plus money. If you get up and do a three run win margin, so, yeah, I'll share that each day, and we'll keep track of it and see how it goes. Uh, usually when I do shit like this, so the Pirates will probably get red hot here soon. So if they do, Pirate fans, you're welcome. It's because I was betting them. 
or against them, rather. Sticking with baseball, six no-hitters. Seven being the record for the modern era. The Indians, Rangers, and Mariners have all been no-hit twice this season. So there's a ton of games left, too. So I'd be shocked if we don't see another one, especially at the pace this is going. But just kind of brings to question, you know, a lot of people are wondering why this is happening. And it's, uh, I mean, I think most people who watch a lot of baseball have an idea as to why it's happening all the time is because small ball and, and, you know, contact hitting isn't really around as much, especially small ball, but just, you know, like bunting and moving runners over. It's, kind of a home run or a bust anymore with a lot of these players. It's what they're, they're swinging hard. Every, every at bat they're trying to, to blow it out of the park, even in situations where a different approach might be more suitable. So we got a whole lot of months of baseball left. We got what all of June, July, August, September, before we get to, you know, the October playoffs, but that record could be, not only broken, but crushed if, you know, this keeps going on. And at least uh, I I know I'd previously mentioned on an episode about the Indians. They're in company now, so they're not the only team who's been – because no team still has been no-hit three times. I'm pretty sure that's what we discussed before. So now there's three teams in danger of doing that and a lot of games to go. So, again, seven's the record. One more no-hitter ties the record for the modern era. There was one uh, stat from, like, 1884 where there was eight no-hitters, but they don't count that towards, like, the modern era. Um, you know, the the new records, I guess. Not really new, though, but newer than 1884. So, upcoming event that I that just uh, got – signed this week or or uh, agreed upon that I'm actually excited for because I do think boxing's pretty cool. I don't have like a favorite boxer or anything like that, but the actual boxers who really do box, not Jake Paul and Nate Robinson and whatever uh Ben Askren or whoever whatever celebrity he is gonna fight next. I saw like Lamar Odom wants to fight or somebody, I don't know. Just dumb. He just needs to fight an actual boxer and get his ass kicked once. Anyways, Wilder and Fury, uh, Deontay Wilder, Tyson Fury, part three. There uh, there was an arbitrator ruling. So Fury had actually had a match agreed upon with Anthony Joshua, which was going to be for his uh, heavyweight belt for Fury's. And an arbitrator ruled somewhere in the language of the previous contracts. I don't know why or what, but it, they said that Wilder has to fight Fury again. So that has now been scheduled for July 24th. <coughs> Excuse me. Deontay Wilder in the and Fury in the first match, they were a draw. Second match, Fury won by TKO. Uh, the records these guys have are really impressive. Wilder's 42-1-1, and so his one loss and one draw, both to Tyson Fury. But out of his 42 wins, 41 knockouts. Fury, 30-0-1, uh, so never lost. 21 knockouts. His one draw, obviously, was with Wilder. So it should be a good match. That's something I would probably spend the, the money on 
the pay-per-view deal for it because uh that's you know actual boxing and these are probably the two best in their weight class in the world right now besides obviously anthony joshua who his fight that was supposed to take place with fury in saudi arabia was delayed because of this court ruling so we'll uh you know as time gets closer we'll probably dive into that a little bit more uh Again, I don't know a whole lot about boxing. I just like watching some of these matches. And Wilder's fun to watch. Tyson Fury, it's a a good little rivalry they have going there. So, Other news, Kelvin Benjamin has been signed as a tight end for the New York Giants. Crickets from the sports world because he's only been out of the league for two years as opposed to whatever eight Tebow was or... But uh, it is hilarious. His jersey is the top. Tebow's jersey being top selling. I know we touched on this uh, episode or two ago, maybe last one. But just the backlash that everybody's getting. I actually uh, read quite a bit today about that. Where a lot of people think Urban Meyer's in way over his head. And one was like an NFL executive who just came out and said it on some sports show that... uh. He thinks he just, you know, is approaching this the wrong way and isn't going to do well. But only time will tell with that. I mean, college coaches have come and had success. They've come and been terrible, but hard telling. But I, I just thought it was pretty great that Benjamin uh, and Ian, Ian Rappaport called it a trend that players are changing positions and, and trying to make a comeback or whatever, I guess, if two people do it. But I did see a third guy. Uh, who has been out of the league a while, and I think he signed as a running back with the Patriots. Can't remember his name, but he was a old Panthers like sixth round pick or something like that. So there's some players, uh, you know, trying to get back on the map. I don't see it going well for Tebow, but I just hated all the backlash that came with him signing. It's People are acting like it's their money. Oh, and his contract did come out, which was 900000 So just a couple hundred thousand more than league minimum. And no guaranteed money. So that's a contract that tells you right there, there it's a long shot for him to make the team. But yeah, we'll just uh, keep an eye on it. Touch back on it when training camp rolls around. Obviously the... That's going to be a a hot camp people are watching because of uh, the Tebow signing and Urban Meyer, Trevor Lawrence, the whole, you know, a lot of news coverage is going to be coming from Jacksonville, I would think. All right, we're going to take a break. We will be back with This Week in Sports History. Hi, this is Chris Rossetti, and I wanted to take a moment to tell you about our new website, D9in10sports.com. It's just like the old one, but with the word and in the number 10 added to the end. D9in10sports.com is your new home for District 9 and District 10 high school sports, and we are doing all the things you have come to love from us, plus much, much more. Our goal is the same, to cover every sport at every school in both D9 and D10 in a variety of ways, including writing, video, and audio. If you're a high school sports fan, you need to check out D9in10sports.com today.
Let's take a look back at this week in sports history. This edition of This Week in Sports History is brought to you by D9and10sports.com, the home for all things District 9 and District 10 sports. If you love sports, this is the place to be. So we're going to throw 10 facts at you this week. And we're going to start off. Number one. In 1912, the Philadelphia Athletics defeat the Detroit Tigers 24-2. to This game has a little bit of a backstory to it. In a game the previous day, Ty Cobb was ejected for attacking a heckler, a known heckler, in a game against the New York Highlanders. Ban Johnson, who was the American League president, witnessed the attack and suspended Cobb indefinitely. So the fan, the heckler, his name was Claude Lucker. He was a New Yorker who had lost all but two of his fingers in an accident with a printing press. He had previously gotten under Cobb's skin before. There was This wasn't the first time these two gentlemen had uh, run into each other. Cobb would actually, in some cases, stay out toward the the, uh, bullpen in between innings rather than go to the dugout if he wasn't up or due up so that he could avoid this guy. Well, Cobb goes into the, you know, into the dugout, ends up in the stands. Uh, There was a quote from the newspaper article I read about this where one of the fans, when Cobb was uh, standing over the guy stomping him with his always known uh, metal cleats that he wore, real sharp, long metal cleats, a fan yelled, Cobb, that man has no hands. And Cobb responded, I don't care if he has no feet. So Cobb gets ejected. Uh, the Tigers organization is upset with this, the players specifically. And one one player uh, spoke out and said, if the players cannot have protection, we must protect ourselves. So what the t- Tigers organization, well, the players did was their own little strike. They refused to play until Cobb was reinstated. And now keep in mind, things must have been bad with this heckler because most of Cobb's teammates were very open about not liking him. He was not a good person. I actually find his whole story really fascinating. I think, you know, he was a drinker, smoker, kicked ass at baseball. But anyways, so the players refused to play. The Tigers are facing a $5,000 fine if they forfeit this game against the Athletics. So they fielded a team of amateurs to play during this player strike, including 48-year-old bench coach Deacon McGuire, uh, who caught the game. And yeah, they lose 24 to two. So uh, Cobb ends up, you know, being reinstated and, and the Tigers who weren't, I don't think that great that season anyways, I was reading, but they got their team back. So I just, I thought that was a pretty unique backstory. I never heard of the player strike before. All right, we will move on. Number two, 1920, 47 fans arrested at Cubs field. Now it wasn't. It, it is Wrigley, but that was not what it was called during 1920. It became Wrigley Field in 1927. Bonus fact. And uh, the Chicago police set up detectives, and they cased this section of fans that were gambling on the entire game, pitches uh, at bats, how people were going to make an out. You know, if this guy pops up, I win a dollar, whatever. And these detectives actually sat in with these people and 
did a little operation to get to know these guys and their, you know, whatever. And on, on, uh, yeah, this week in 1920, they, after the scoreless first inning, Chicago police come down in, in mass numbers and arrest 47 people in this gambling sting. Number three. 1933. The first Major League Baseball All-Star Game is announced to be played July 6th at Comiskey Park and will be played as part of Chicago's World Fair. So that is when the All-Star Game began, 1933. Number four. 1935. The NFL adopts the annual college draft to begin in 1936, so the following year. Uh, Bonus fact, because I had to look this up because I never knew this and was curious. The first player ever drafted in that 1936 draft was Jay Berwanger. He was drafted by the Eagles, uh, never played, never got a contract settled. Uh, They were far apart on money. And his uh, negotiation rights were traded to the Bears, where he never played either and uh, was still about a money issue. And later in his life, uh, Burwanger was interviewed and said it was, you know, the biggest regret he ever had was just being too stubborn about the money. Could have been an NFL player. Number five. 1959. The Yankees sink to last place for the first time since 1940. So 19 years. That 19-year window, never in last place. And I just threw that in here because we all like to see the Yankees in last place, right? Can't be alone on that one. Number six. 1964. The first Tim Hortons coffee and donut shop opens in Hamilton, Ontario. Did not throw this in because donuts and police. I threw this in because Tim Horton was an NHL player slash businessman. Uh, A lot of people may not have known that. Tim Hortons. We have one uh, here in our, our own little town. Number seven. 1990. Andre Dawson receives a record... Five intentional walks in one game. That has to be the most respectful thing I've ever heard in my life. So I'm sure Andre was walking tall that day. He was pretty damn good, though. But yeah, five intentional walks. They had no interest in pitching to him. Number eight. 1990. Carlton Fisk versus Deion Sanders. I never knew about this either. So I did some research on this one. Carlton Fisk, everybody knows the catcher from the White Sox, played for a very long time, was catching a game against the Yankees, and Dion came up to bat. Uh, Carlton Fisk was a very old-school player. I believed the game had an etiquette to it, uh, you know, the old-school style, where which clearly it's getting away from now, but we'll get to that later. Uh Dion comes up to bat, and what Dion would do before his at-bats, another thing I didn't know, was he would draw a, di- a dollar sign in the dirt. Well, Fisk didn't like that. So Dion pops up in the infield and uh, doesn't run it out. Fisk also had a problem with that. So he tells him, run everything out. Play the game the right way. Basically what he's saying to Dion. Next at bat, Dion comes up, draws his dollar sign, and turns to Carlton Fisk and said, 
Hey, just so you know, the days of slavery are over. Fisk also had a problem with that and got in Dion's face and in his own words, which I listened to in an interview, said, I don't care if you're black, blue or purple. You play the game the right way. And he made it very clear to Dion that uh, in the interview I listened to, he kept his uh, language safe for work, but it apparently wasn't that way on the field. And he told Dion that if he did not play the game correctly, he would kick his ass right there. And uh, there's, you know, there's a video of them getting separated, but you can see him pop right up from his catcher's stance and, and say that to him or, well, you know, he's saying something to him. But yeah, I never knew about that. Carlton Fisk, Deion Sanders. That was in 1990. Number nine. 1991. NFL owners agree to add two teams to the 94 for the 94 season. So three years later, which we now know as the Jacksonville Jaguars and the Carolina Panthers with the, uh, they were built with the expansion draft and, and all of that. Number 10. 2018. Michigan State University pays $500 million in claims to 300 survivors of sexual abuse involving Larry Nassar, the largest sexual abuse case in sports history. There's a documentary on Netflix about this. This dude was a total dirtbag. In, insane uh, what the gymnast lifestyle and, and all you know that comes along with it. If you watch... If you get a chance to watch that documentary, I can't remember the name of it, but if I think it was like Athlete A or something or something like that. But this dude was a total dirtbag. Yeah, they had to pay $500 million in claims because that was uh, where, you know, he, he ended up from there working with Team USA, of course. And, yeah, a lot of girls got their story out there, and and uh, he's – He's going bye-bye for, I think, forever, but I can't remember what his sentence was. But All right, that will wrap up our 10 facts. Take a break, and we'll be back with the things that sting. time for the things that sting the worst stories in sports according to joe all right we're back things that sting a couple items to discuss today we're going to start off with the story of austin p defensive back Wontarius bryant if you haven't seen this uh he is the player who obviously went undrafted um and allegedly I'm I'm not sold on all of this and I'll get to that, but allegedly he falls for a hoax where he was invited to the Atlanta Falcons rookie minicamp. So Wontarius Bryant is receiving text messages from a person with an Atlanta area code and they are claiming to be Falcons defensive coordinator, Dean Pease. Obviously the protocol for how a rookie would be invited to minicamp would only be known by somebody who, has gone through it, which Bryant hasn't. 
So he buys into these text messages where he's supposed to be, you know, in Atlanta or wherever. I can't remember. It's outside of Atlanta. He's supposed to be there for rookie minicamp. So he shows up only to find out he was not invited and he's been basically set up. So Bryant makes a post about this. And the thing that throws me off here is I had, I would have screenshotted texts and, and posted them with his post because this could quite possibly be the best public relations stunt done by a player ever. Of course, he wasn't invited to the Atlanta minicamp, but because of what happened to him, Don Yee, who is an NFL super agent and the brainchild of the hub football event, which is a showcase of undrafted talent, uh, tons of scouts, NFL, you know, team reps are go to this event. So he's been invited to that because of what happened to him. Basically it's how, you know, his, his name got thrown into the mix for this because he wasn't originally invited to this event. But now because of what happened to him, they bring him in. Again, he puts up a huge post. Uh, he does deny interviews with ESPN and all of that. So that kind of makes me lean towards, yeah, this actually did happen because he's not taking advantage of all the publicity he could have had because of it. But it was enough to, you know, get him his name out there. So unknown if he'll make a team. Uh, I did watch a, a video of a former Georgia quarterback. I can't remember his name who also went undrafted, but did go through this process of, you know, trying to make an NFL team and everything. And he was surprised that Wontarius Bryant didn't catch some red flags from, you know, the, the process of, and how it was unfolding in front of him. I don't know. I don't know if he made this whole thing up. I mean, I would have just shared the some text. At least then you have, you know, your, your proof. He could have removed my doubt right then. I'm not, again, not saying it. he is making it up. I just would have liked to have seen more. But again, with the declining interviews, kind of makes me think, because I did, you know, I read a lot about people's reactions like he's handling this like a you know pretty classy and you know they thought that it was a professional approach that he took to how he did it but I would have liked to have seen the the text I mean he got catfished basically so good luck to him at the hub event I suppose Tony LaRusa we're going to talk about him here a little bit. Most of you saw, I think I shared something on the Facebook page. Yerman Mercedes up, uh, I think it was, I don't know, 14-4, 16-4. I think it was 16-4. Late in the game, the Twins wave the white flag and they throw a position player in the pitch who, who couldn't even register. He was throwing so slow, it was under 50. It wouldn't even register with the their, you know, speed gun for stat cast. Like it wasn't even registering for, for any of that. They were kind of joking about that on the broadcast. He throws a 47 mile an hour pitch on, on a three Oh count. Now he throws three consecutive balls, three Oh count. Yerman stands in there, 
pitch comes in right down the middle. He smokes it over the seven, like left center center field fence. Now with the score, and uh, you know the late in the game, three zero count. The score. A lot of people had some mixed feelings about Mercedes swinging at this pitch and crushing it out of the ballpark. One of which was his own manager, Tony Larusa, who publicly pretty much belittled Mercedes, saying that he made a mistake and he shouldn't have swung at that, and it was not a situation for him to swing at a 3-0 pitch, and just, you know, kind of siding with the twins and their disdain for what took place. Uh, the next day on Mercedes, I think it was his third or fourth at bat, probably fourth, Tyler Duffy throws behind him, immediately ejected. Rocco uh, Baldelli, the coach of the twins, he gets ejected. Duffy suspended three games. Baldelli suspended one game. So I did a lot of reading on this whole scenario, and I found an article that I really, really liked. It was uh, CBS Sports, Matt Snyder. And he basically just goes off about the this old school style versus new school, the unwritten rules that have always seemed to have existed, but nobody ever knew why. Like swinging at a 3-0 count, for example. Uh, I understand there's situations where you pride what you definitely don't want to. But with LaRusa basically being more concerned with what the twins were feeling rather than protecting his own team and, and being a, a, there for his guys, how do you tell them to quit? Like the, the, you know, and the other thing too that I read about Mercedes is that his, his contract, because he's on like one of those international deals, it's not a lot of money for a major league baseball player. It's like 500 and some thousand. So stats and, you know, things like that, that those are important to him right now. He's trying to make a living doing this. And if he wants to get, you know, one of these fat deals that all these other guys get, numbers are important. So, I see both sides of it, but what do you what do you tell them to do if the pitch is coming down the middle? And and another thing was that I kind of read about that I thought was interesting too was the the three zero pitch. It's most likely the first pitch after you know after three zero count is coming right down the middle, uh, and then with the the way the game's changed into like we talked about earlier, all these no hitters, everybody's trying to hit home runs pretty opportune time on a three Oh pitch. If you know you're more than likely getting a fastball right down the middle, regardless, Tony LaRusa, I think working his way out of a job. I think there's like some DUI issue he had, I'm pretty sure. And then on top of this is how you lose a locker room, not having your guys back. Uh, Tim Anderson had one of his little vague tweets that came up that said, hear nothing, say nothing, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it's just, that's a really bad look. These unwritten rules are always debated when it comes to Major League Baseball. The bat flip, uh, if you recall just a couple years ago, the MLB started that campaign called Let the Kids Play. 
which was what they were, you know, any MLB advertising, it was centered around let the kids play. The basis of that was literally because of all these old school players bitching about the bat flips and the, you know, over the top celebrations on a home run. Sometimes when you're down 10 and they're still doing it. And and in that case, I completely agree with the old players. If you're getting smoked, you know, you're down eight and you hit a homer in the top of the ninth that brings you within seven and you're bat flipping and, you know, kind of hot dogging around the bases, whatever. To me, it's that that's where I would say the line needs to be drawn because you're losing, you know, you hit one and it ties the game. You hit one and it takes the lead. Then you have all the reason in the world to celebrate, but one that, you know, comes late in the game and is a whole lot of nothing coming behind it. That, that doesn't, doesn't bode well with me either. Trevor Bauer, who I've, most people know, I think I've spewed some hate on him before. I'm not a fan of that guy, but he did make a comment that I appreciated where he said, you know, if you, it, it kind of, it kind of goes back to reminds me of like the Michael Irvin. Uh, it's all about the U. He said that if you don't want him to dance, keep him out of the end zone. And Trevor Bauer kind of said the same thing. If pitchers don't want to see bat flips and don't give up home runs, pitch better. It's, and I, I agree with that, but the let the kids play campaign come along in response to all, you know, Mike Schmidt. I know he was a big guy who was or older player who's speaking out about the way, you know, the, the attitude and the, the swag, I guess you could call it that these guys carry when they're on the field now. And, and they, uh, MLB hired Griffey jr. To, you know, who was the kid and, he was the one who said it, let the kids play and in the commercials. So back to LaRusa though, it's if he wanted to have a conversation with Mercedes about swinging at a 3-0 pitch late in the game, you don't do it over a Zoom interview following the game. You pull him aside in the dugout or in your office in the locker room. That didn't need to be done in front of everybody. He's, it, it, to me, I just don't, I don't get the, where, where do you tell people to quit? And I, I mean, that's like a, a conversation for all blowouts. You know, you can pull your starters in, say like in high school sports, for example, super one-sided game or even college football where you get these super one-sided games and how, how do you tell the kids to quit? Cause you're going to pull your starters and put the backups in at that point. Do you tell the backups not to try too hard? Because these guys are get they're finally getting playing time. They're going to be playing hard. They're obviously not as good as the starters, but they're still going to play hard. And I just, I don't know. And you have a guy like, this is the one thing Snyder said that I love the most. What makes a mockery of baseball more? The guy who swings at the three Oh pitch late in the game when they're up 12 and hits a homer or bringing in a position player who can't break 50 on the speed gun. And if you look at it from that perspective, I agree that the position player is making more of a mockery of the game than the guy who smokes one out of the park. 
Just my thoughts. All right. We will take a break and be back with my hive. Hi, this is Ryan Klein, the host of the new pop culture podcast, Me, Myself, and Rye. You can find me on Spotify, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and several other platforms. Special guests, breakaway shows, bonus episodes, cold beers, and a whole lot more. So what are you guys and gals waiting for? Subscribe now to the Me, Myself, and Rye podcast on Spotify or wherever it is that you get your shows and start listening today. to dive into is an argument that's been taking place on ESPN uh, about a week ago or so. Kendrick Perkins, uh, Ryan Clark, Max Kellerman, all these guys, who Kellerman to me is like the king of terrible takes. He's an idiot. But Kendrick Perkins says it's harder to win an NBA championship than a Super Bowl. So we're going to just kind of dive into this a little bit because uh, I'm – going to give my thoughts on it after I throw some numbers and stuff out to everybody. And then I'm hoping uh, on the, the Facebook posts that we'll put, you know, that I'll put up with the, this episode on it. I'd love to hear everybody's opinions of which one and why um, NBA championship versus Super Bowl, which one's harder to win. So Perkins says the seven game series is what makes it more difficult because you have to beat a team uh, four out of seven games, they you know teams can make adjustments and uh, you know what have you to to try and stop their opponent, obviously. But uh, Ryan Clark fires back, and I agree with Ryan Clark that a seven game series draws it out because if uh, you know Curry or LeBron or whoever the guys you're constantly seeing in the finals, if one of them has a bad game and their team loses that night, they still, you know, have opportunity to come back and even the series or win the series, whatever. Calais Campbell chimes in and says in a tweet, which I also really liked, he says, in basketball, you can have a bad day. The better teams are usually going to win a seven-game series, even if they start 0-2. In football, you can't be off for a moment. Better team can and will lose a lot more often any given Sunday. Football is harder because the margin for error is less. I agree with that because when you talk from a championship standpoint, it's one game. One game that, you know, can be determined by even injuries, for example. You know, if a guy's out a week, it could ruin a team's run. I mean, everybody saw what, uh, you know, there was a short time I don't remember if it was last season or the one before that when Mahomes went down and the Chiefs were in trouble. It's those players are, you know, impact players clearly. But if they're out for that playoff game 
that's it. I mean, that's you don't you don't get the you know game two. You don't get game three all the way to seven. So Ryan Clark, like I said, talking about wild card teams making the Super Bowl, which does happen, as opposed to a seven or eight seed in the NBA making the finals. The way Ryan Clark put it, I really liked because he actually said that it seems more almost geared towards, you know, the marketing standpoint where these long seven game series, you can kind of the NBA can kind of dictate who gets there, you know, with with drawing out the games. Like I said, if, you know, one of those players, key players has a bad night, not to mention, too, with the way the super teams are going now in the NBA, it's getting rather predictable. You know, Durant joined the Warriors knowing exactly what was going to happen. LeBron went to Miami with Wade and Bosch because they knew exactly what was going to happen. They, you know, you can, you can, players can build their own winners. Coaches in the NBA, like I said, are just kind of gone by the wayside, it seems. But um, speaking of that, so we're going to talk to or talk about, uh, Repeats, repeating as champions, because I think that says a lot. If it's harder in one or the other, in the NFL, since the Super Bowl era, which, you know, at the merger, you have seven teams who have repeated, and it's happened a total of eight times. So you have the Packers, Super Bowl one and two, Dolphins, Super Bowl seven and eight, Steelers, Super Bowls nine and ten, and then 13 and 14, 49ers, 23 and 24, Cowboys, Super Bowl, 27, 28, Broncos, 32, 33, Patriots, 38, 39. Now the NBA, eight teams, a total of eight teams have repeated, but it's happened 13 times. This also goes back before the the Super Bowl era, so keep that in mind as well. But you have the Minnesota Lakers, who repeated two times and then again three times. The Celtics, who won eight straight and then a couple years or a, a year after they lost, won two more. The Lakers have repeated twice. They had a three-peat and another time that they repeated twice or won two in a row. The Pistons have won two in a row. The Bulls won three in a row two different times. The Rockets have won two in a row. The Heat have won two in a row. And the Warriors have won two in a row. Now, when you get, you know, to the one of the things I did find that was interesting about this is that Phil Jackson was a part of a lot of those repeats. But, you know, arguably the best NBA coach of all time. So what is harder? I Me personally, I agree with the football guys. And it's not just because I'm anti-NBA or anything like that. I just do believe it is harder because it's one game. You have, you know, if you lose even, you know, even the Super Bowl playoffs to get there. Injuries, I, you know, could affect both depending on the length of them or whatever. But then again, and basketball is a long season. I mean, those guys wear and tear, but I don't think they deal with the physical ailments that an NFL player who just, in you know, did a, 16 now 17 game schedule and then into the playoffs say as a wild card where you know you got to win wild card round divisional round championship and then super bowl so four more games now you're looking at 
you know, 19 and 0 being the perfect season if you were to do that. But as a wild card, if you're going through, you're looking at it, you know, 20, 20 games, now 21. So I'm still, like I said, siding with Campbell, Ryan Clark. Uh, they talked about, Perkins talked about travel time where he thought, well, NBA teams are going city to city, you know, every other day. Whereas NFL, it's, you know, travel late in the week, get settled in for, you know, a day, whatever, game day the following day. So I'm, yeah, I definitely would love to hear everybody's input on this as to what they believe is harder to win an NBA championship or a Super Bowl. We look at, like I said, the super teams, and I think that that, you know, you can, you can really write off a lot of playoff teams. Whereas in the NFL, like I, I, you can, I mean, you look at like the Redskins last year, I'm sorry, the Washington football team who won the NFC East with, uh, I think a might've even been a losing record, but then I, you know, they, they come in and they, uh, host Tampa, I think, didn't they? Yeah, because they're a division champ, so they had a home game. And ultimately lose, of course, but gutsy performance by a backup QB. You know, that team didn't belong in the playoffs, but that division was what it was, which, you know, is a whole other argument. Should those teams be making the playoffs? You know, a lot of people would say that even though they're a division champ, they don't deserve it, whereas, you know, a 10-6 and six or 9-7 and seven team misses the playoffs because of it. So, like I was saying, though, in the NBA, you look at the six, seven, eight seeds, maybe not the, I don't know, some sixes, but sevens and eights for sure. And like Ryan Clark said, you can look at the field, the playoff field, and you can pretty much pencil in two teams that are going to probably more than likely going to be there. Whereas in uh, NFL football, you know, you look at the, the conference brackets for the playoffs, it's a lot different. It's a lot of, and again, the any given Sunday, really. I mean, but you look at the NFC last year with the Packers, the Saints, the, you know, the Bucks who obviously won it. And there's just a lot of, I don't think anybody could confidently say, you know, this team for sure, 100%, without it just basically being something that, you know, they're going, just just saying it to say it, just going out on a limb, whatever. I think that the any given Sunday does dictate this entire argument, really, because like Campbell said, margin for error is less because it's one game. And you can't, you know, you can't be off for a moment. The better team can and will lose a lot more often. And that does happen if you're, a sports better like myself with football, you see that a lot. You know, the, the, the lines are usually close, but they don't always go that way. The favorites don't always win. It's the NFL. I mean, uh, what Allen's Allen's rookie year when in the game against uh, Minnesota, Buffalo was 17 point underdogs. They were Minnesota was favored I think it was 17. It may not have been that high. 
I think it was in double digits though. Anyways, they're underdogs and they, you know, they scored like 20 some points in the first quarter, 17 in the first quarter and rolled up the Vikings. Vegas didn't see it going that way, but that's the nature of the NFL. So I want to hear your thoughts. Everybody chime in on this. Uh, if you care to, I'd like to see some debate. Uh, change my mind. If you have a, a good solid NBA argument as to why that would be harder. I just don't believe it because I think players can, the way they're moving, you know, team to team and loading up these super teams, you can pretty much take, you know, 80, 80, 85% of the NBA teams and say, these guys are definitely not, not only not going to make it to the NBA championship, but they're not going to win it. They might not even make the conference finals. So when the post goes up, I'd like to hear what everybody has to say about that. I think this all kind of reroutes back to my NBA jam argument that that game couldn't be made now because there's just, I think the, the superior teams in the, in the NBA are, it's a bigger gap between them and the shitty teams in the NBA. Whereas in the NFL, you know, there's bad teams, but the, the margin isn't always there and the game doesn't always go the way, you know, that it is predicted to go. Whereas in the NBA, it generally does when it comes to, you know, conference champions or division champions, whatever. All right, that'll be it. I will be back with closing. Stick around. All right, everybody, that wraps up episode 10. Appreciate everyone listening. I want to thank the sponsors, D9and10sports.com and the Me, Myself, and Ride podcast. If you have any interest in doing any advertising or sponsorship, get a hold of me either on the Facebook page or the email that is attached. It's jbsports at gmail.com. We can discuss uh, what's available. Also, for the top fans on the Facebook page, the koozies have been ordered. That is the the prize I will be giving out to the top fans. They'll have first crack at those. Uh, choice of color. There's a bunch of different kinds. So keep interacting. Appreciate it. I love watching uh, the banter and, and things like that that happen on the page. So stick around next week. We'll be back with episode 11. Take care. <laughs>